Okay, am I on? Yep. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great passage. We pray that as we look at this today, you will help us to understand what you want us to hear and to be prepared for the difficulties that inevitably come in this lifetime. We pray that we will be a little more prepared to seek your face and your glory in these times. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would like to say real quickly, uh, well, a couple things, actually. Thank you, Carol, for that song. Very beautiful. And uh, Andy, I think you chose the music today. Top-notch choice. I appreciate that. All, all four um, songs fit very well with the, with the text here. Paul introduces two concepts in verse 18. He writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. The truth that Paul wants to address in this paragraph has to do with the fact that there is both history and hope going on at all times in the Christian life. Now, Paul does not use the term history in Romans 8, but the concept is clearly there. And we, when I talk about history in this context, I'm not talking about the, the study of the things in the past. I'm talking about everything that happens during our lifetime, each of us, experiences a unique history that starts at the beginning of our lives and runs to the end of our lives. It is our personal history. Paul is talking about that history. And he recognizes that that history is full of sufferings. But he also recognize, recognizes that hope is in existence as well. In Romans 8... History is the reality that everything, every person throughout history and time, or throughout time experiences, and it involves suffering. And hope is the promise that, some, that something is better, and it involves future glory. I can't read the... I think I'm far behind. I'm, yeah, okay, we are good. Biblical hope is certain. If God has promised something, it will take place. And it is grounded, the idea of hope is grounded on three realities. First one, 
is that history has meaning. History is not just random events that come down on us and some get lucky and some don't. I'll read a quote that has to do with that a little bit later in the sermon here. It possesses a discernible beginning, middle, and end. In our Christmas season, this season, we celebrated that turning point in history when Christ came to the world as a mortal man, as Jesus of Nazareth, taught and suffered during his lifetime and finally suffered ultimately in the pains of death and rose from the dead so that he could give us an eternal hope. The second point is that history possesses a discernible beginning, excuse me, I got that, discernible beginning, middle, and end. History has meaning. Excuse me, history will conclude with a happy ending. I'm sorry, I was on the wrong line here. History will conclude with a happy ending for some. Those who belong to Christ have that hope within us, as we've been singing about this morning, as we've been meditating on it, that we will be conformed to the image of God. And finally, the third point is that those who belong to God will share in that happy ending. It is not something that is distant. It is something that is real for us. Paul acknowledges both of these points in the next couple of verses. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Did you notice the personification in the first few words there? The creation waits with eager longing. It waits for the redemption that is promised to come in the fullness of time. We don't have time to cover this today, but in the paragraph just prior to this, he talks about, Paul talks about the nature of what he calls the adoption as sons. Adoption as sons in the, in the biblical concept is not being adopted into God's family like we consider adoption. It is coming into adulthood and going through the ceremony where we are accepted in the family as adults with full rights and privileges. We wait for that. The creation waits for that. He says that it will take place at the end time when God eliminates all evil from the world and creates a new heavens and a new earth. For now, though, I want to concentrate on the life in this present time. Why is life so full of suffering? Paul explains that the creation was subjected to futility. What does he mean by that? I think he means it's just that the creation is a victim of the fall of humanity. But he says it, says it in these words, it was subjected to futility. It's a passive voice here. The creation did not have a choice in the matter. It was put into a state of futility, and now it waits to be redeemed from that state of futility. 
I've talked to different people about this at different times, and sometimes I'll ask them, well, who put the state, who, who put the futility on, onto creation? And to find that out, we go back to Genesis. We, understand, we know the Genesis account. We're familiar with it. In the account, when the man and woman rebel against God, there are four characters involved in that account. There's the man, the woman, man meaning Adam, and that is the general term for mankind. It includes man and woman, his wife, the serpent, and God. And I've asked different people about this at different times, and they'll give me different answers for it. They'll say, well, maybe it was Adam, or maybe it was Eve, maybe it was the serpent. I want to go through and look at each of these. We know the account historically, but I want to go all the way back to the beginning. God created the cosmos and everything that is in it to glorify himself. At the end of Genesis 1, the great doxological section of the creation we read, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the beginning, the world was full of promise. We also know that God created a man and a woman with responsibilities. They were to maintain God's creation. They were to subdue the animal life that otherwise would have gone uncontrolled. They were to tend to the garden to keep it. And a lot of people believe that that was not just the garden itself, but to expand into the entire world and make the whole world a garden of Eden as the world was populated. And finally, we know that the man and woman rebelled against their creator and brought sin into the world. In Genesis then, the creation started out as good, but it was subjected, Paul says, to futility. So who did it? Some say it was the serpent. That's not the case, can't be the case, because Paul writes that, he's, that the creation was subjected to futility in the hope that it would be redeemed into the glory, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Serpent cannot do that. He is bent only on destruction. So he's out of the picture. Was it Eve or Adam, either one, and again, the answer is no, simply because they do not have the power. They do not have the authority to put the creation in futility, also in hope. That leaves only God. And we know that Paul was doing his theology correctly and accurately. If we read part of the uh, Genesis text here, this is during the judgment of the serpent and the man and the woman. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. The rebellion did not bring the curse on the world. God himself pronounced the curse. It is his judgment. But Paul says that he also brought it in hope. Where is the hope in Genesis? It's actually in the middle of the curse. There's a passage between this, Genesis 3.15. You're probably familiar with this, where the Lord told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. It is the first utterance of a prophecy that involves redemption in the Bible. It's purposefully cryptic. Adam and Eve did not understand fully what the thing meant, but they did believe it. Because Eve says, when Cain was born, I have gotten a man-child from God. That is referring to the promise that God had made. She wasn't correct about that, but she, was, she knew that it was a true promise. In Genesis 3.21 also, God makes garments of skin for the couple. This is the concession that covered their nakedness, but it also required him to take part of his good, holy creation and destroy it for their sakes. But it also proves that he is about to bring grace to them, even at a cost to himself. That act gave them a hope for a future redemption from sin. Now in Genesis, that is just a glimmer in a dark cave. But as we walk through the Old Testament, we see this glimmer becoming brighter and brighter and brighter till finally we come to the birth of Christ where it shines almost at his brightest. We know now more historically from the, the development of the New Testament theology of what it means. Paul then writes regarding the... Um, the suffering that is in the world, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We still live under the curse even though it has been mitigated to a degree, to a great degree, but we still live under that curse. We still have difficulties. We still have problems. We groan within ourselves. The songs that we had today, the songs that we sang today talk about this. As believers, then, we live under these two truths. The groaning within ourselves is the truth of history. The world remains under a curse while history continues. This is the reality of history. But we also have the reality of hope. And that is the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in our lives as the guarantor of our ultimate deliverance. He is a witness to our hope in glory. That is the bulk of the text here. We'll deal with the last couple of verses at the end of the sermon. But I want to go into two applications. One regards what happens when we deny hope, and the other one regards what, we did when, what happens when we deny reality. I'm going to go to extremes on both of these because we need to hold these two realities, not just one, either one, but two. We need to hold both of these realities in our hearts if we are to remain in a stable relationship with the Lord. So first, what happens when we try to deny either the reality of history or the reality of hope in the world? I want to take you to the secular world first. And this is denying hope, by the way. There is a British 
scientist by the name of Richard Dawkins, who was on a, who was on a um, crusade to convert all of us to evolutionism, to atheism. He is very angry because there are not more atheists in the world. He's stated this several times. In his mind, hope does not exist. Here's how he describes the world in his book called River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. Listen to how he acknowledges history, but tries to deny any hope from history. <coughs> Dawkins writes this. If the, on the contrary, if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, then meaningless tragedies are exactly what we should expect, along with the equally meaningless good fortune. Such a universe would be neither good, excuse me, neither evil nor good in intention. It would manifest no intentions of any kind. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any, in, nor any justice. Don't you want to go there? I mean, Dawkins wants us to go there. He's a missionary for this kind of view. He wants people to be converted to this kind of view. He's, he's evangelistic in what he's doing here. This book is an evangelistic book from Dawkins. He's an evangelist for atheism. One of the ironies about this quote, at least I find this ironic, is the fact that this guy is so angry at those who continue to believe in God. In his world, if he's consistent anyways with what he's written, it shouldn't matter what people believe. For a guy who insists on the absence of rhyme or reason in the world, he really gets pretty bent out of shape when someone disagrees with his idea of rhyme and reason. I find that very ironic. He wants a meaningless world, but he, he gets mad when people don't believe in a meaningless world. The fact, the mere fact that we have gathered here today to worship, to give God glory for his work, for his history, for what he has done, what he is doing and what he will continue to do, shows that we have rejected this notion of a hopeless world. That's one view there. That's the extreme. There are times, and there have been times when I have come to a place, there, in fact, there was a time when I came to a place in my life where I was about to say, I'm just going to drop everything. This was after my first wife died and I was grieving for her death, grieving for the, the loss and everything. And I seriously considered for a short period of time, very short, by the way, of becoming an atheist, concluding that there was no meaning in the world. What I realized very quickly was that if I did that, I would have to be consistent in that and abandon everything that I believe. And I realized I can't do that. And I had to put my faith in God, even in my grief. It was difficult, but I had to go that route. But there is the other possibility, and this is one that is fairly common in Christian thinking, 
And if you start to look for it, it's all over the place. And this is when we deny the reality of history. It's a more subtle denial than what Dawkins does. I think part of the, the fact that we can do this is because we live in such a comfort-oriented culture. I mean, our nation, for example, is particularly has been blessed. And I praise the Lord for our blessings, but they have gotten us to a point where we almost worship, we sometimes do worship comfort itself. And what that involves, what that has involved historically among the churches, and thankfully I do not see it in this church, but if you start to look at Christian radio and Christian music, Christian praise programs, um, you'll start to see this growth of a praise-only culture. It's subtle, but it's seri- I, I think it's a serious matter. I have a, a Christian friend who wrote on Facebook a couple years ago, posted a, a uh, log that said, try these six words here. Try this. Don't pray, only praise. I hear this all the time. We just want to praise God. I think personally that this is a lie that she has fallen into, and I think it has permeated Christian culture. I've heard it from a number of people. I've heard it from people in um, featured in... Um, the uh, Voice of the Martyrs in their magazine. One of the one of the persecuted people said, "I've just come to praise God only." We need to recognize that we do not have to just praise God. He invites us to lament. He invites us to cry out to Him. And if we don't. If we don't cry out to him and we start to deny the privilege for crying out uh, in a subtle way, we're starting to think that if we pray, if we praise through the pain, that our prayers will be will carry a greater weight. I think this light drowns us ultimately, is my personal opinion on this. I think the last whimper of a praise-only culture is the unspoken thought that grows in the back of our heads. See, God, I'm praising. Why aren't you doing something? This view denies the reality of history that Paul has shown us. When we do that, we lose sight of the glory of future hope, and we start to look for our reward right now. A little bit of an aside here as I was studying this, as I realized this week from about a third of the way of the chapter in, all this doxological praise that Paul is doing is intermixed all the way through with deep expressions of physical and psychological suffering. They are together. He never praises God outside of suffering. It is together because these two realities are our reality right now. We cannot deny them. 
Hope only thinking is a nice way of saying all praise all the time. It's thinking, that kind of thinking outlaws grief and lament. When we find ourselves disallowed to cry out, how long, O Lord, we deny God's right to be sovereign over history. Instead, we look for results right now. There's an extreme development of this. There's a recent blog by Sam Williamson. He writes a, a blog called Beliefs of the Heart. Very good writer, very insightful writer, by the way. He wrote this a few months ago. I once met a man, let's call him Nathan, who described himself as a recovering charismatic. He was open to it, but his experience of modern worship gave him pause. As he grew up, his mother frenetically flitted from one worship experience to the next. After Toronto, she visited Florida, then Bethel Church, and then anywhere she heard that something was happening. Worship music unceasingly blared throughout the house. She seemed to need that euphoric oomph to motivate her for the times and tasks, tiniest ta of tasks. Wiping kitchen counters took the combined efforts of Matt Redman, Chris Tomlin, and Paul Balash. But she remained anxious, fearful, self-concerned, and neglectful of her husband and sons. She'd say, I just want to go where God is working. But in reality, seemed she, it seems she just wanted an escape, a place where her problems could be, uh, where her problems could be sedated. After describing this, Nathan added, and this emphasis is in the, the blog, a friend of mine became a crack, crack addict. Frankly, I didn't see much difference between him and my mom. They got their highs in different ways, but their lives remained a mess. I wonder, he continued, if modern worship is like a cocaine rush. I think he's got a point. It is good to bring praise to God in the middle of pain. Sometimes we are, we feel a need and we are required to do just that. But when we make that attitude the only option, it becomes a denial of the pain itself. Praise without the freedom to grieve is nothing more than hoped divorce from the reality of history. It fails to see what Paul says so forcefully in Romans 8, that God works in our fallen world and that is what brings him glory. Grief and lament are the very things that orient our spiritual compass. When I say that, what I mean is when pain comes to us, it turns us in the right direction to seek for hope because the only alternative we have for physical pain and psychological pain and even the um, persecutions that we suffer today is the hope of glory. And that orients us to that. Think about the times, for example, when you have worshiped in sorrow, a crisis that has left you breathless, a loved one has died, or any number of things that have happened in your life. When you have brothers and sisters in the church, it 
come to put your arms around you, how do you feel at that moment? One of the old hymns, one of my favorite old hymns, we share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. The kind of worship that we lift up in pain carries more weight than a hundred praise celebrations because it honors the hope that is to come and it honors the deepest need in our heart. Praise that ignores the reality of, of history is nothing more than an attempt to turn hope into something that we can see. And I don't have the, see if I got the passage on here. And this is what Paul means by the last part of the passage here. For in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen. Hope that we want to possess right now. The kind that we want to replace pain with. Hope that we have seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Joy can never be complete in this world because this world will always be in pain. The glory of Romans 8 is the reality that God's work in our fallen world prepares the way for a new world where we will be completely redeemed. He calls us to look for that future promise when all pain is gone and all joy will be perfect. Let's close with prayer.